0: Uh, grace and peace to all of you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, that's our greeting we use in the Czech Republic for Biblical, so we'd like to stick with that. Thanks for your gracious words, Pastor James, Marcus also. You know, as we view who we are by God's grace, the constant passage that comes to mind is Luke 17.10. We are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. That's it. That defines us. It's a blessing to be here this morning. We're so grateful to God. We're encouraged by the time we can be apart from ministry. We leave it in God's hands. God is strong. He'll protect that. But to be here with you, it's a great joy, a great highlight for each of us in the family. So thank you for inviting us. Thank you for allowing us to be here this morning. It's truly an honor. It's truly a It's a humbling thing for me to come before you to be able to teach the Word of God. It's a high privilege that I in no way underestimate And when James asked me months and months ago about that, to preach, I was so encouraged. And I was asking the Lord, Lord, what would you have me preach on? It was wonderful to see how God would brought our text to us. us look at that in a little bit. But first, let me say also thank you to you as a church for investment in our lives, in our family, in our church ministry. We have been so blessed. I'm sorry, but James, you have done so much more for us than we have for you. That's true. The mission teams, the winter teams, the summer teams, sending Pastor James and his family two summers to be our guest speaker, to be servants of the gospel. Those things we don't forget. Sending even before that, Pastor James with Pastor Bob to kind of do a reconnaissance mission. That was like four years ago, five years ago. Those things have spoken volumes to us about what you guys value in the gospel. So we commend you guys. We thank you for that investment. Thank you also for making the investment, sending a longer-term workers to work with us, this sending Dale and Joan to minister the gospel, and now to have with us Joe and Elaine. These couples are choice ministers of the gospel. They won't tell you that. I hope you guys know that. They are. Uh, they are heroes of the faith. If you see them in action, they are relentless in making contacts with the lost. It's easy for us. We speak the language, but not join the land. They're learning it, but if they go up to people. They make contacts. And I'll tell you, we have been so encouraged in the gospel because of their ministry with us. I need some water. Here we thank you. Where's Huey out there? Right. I bring greetings to you this morning from our church in Claudineau. It's a little church. Those of you that have been there in the summer or winter. No, we average about 25 people. We include everybody that lives and moves, okay, in that number. We thank God for them. But uh, I bring greetings from them. They would truly want to have me convey to you their love in Christ, their sense of kinship with you, and their thankfulness that you guys pray for them regularly. Joe said it well. We desperately depend upon your prayers as a church. I also bring greetings from Usti, from Pastor Yarda, Some of you that have been there remember Yarda. He's doing well. He's a solid brother. He's a faithful servant of the gospel. They're hanging on tight, just trusting God. They have about 12 people that meet together, but God is honoring their faithfulness, and they're continuing to go after the gospel and making it known. Most of you know that for me and Sonia, we spent the first 25 years of our lives in the L.A. area. This was kind of like home to us years and years ago. But I got to tell you, it's kind of different now, coming back for this visit this time. I don't know why. A lot of just things that have stood out to us, even while we're on the airplane, before we landed from France then to L.A., a guy says to me, he said, I can tell you're not from L.A. You speak with a real accent. And I thought, okay. So I'm a foreigner now, I guess. <laughs> and then we, uh, after the uh, arriving at the airport, we get in the cars. By the way, thank you for all of you that came to the airport, the sign, the welcome, it was amazing, thank you very, very much. We get in the car, and it's been years since I've been on the 405. But uh, I get on there, and then Dale and Joan asked if they could drop by and spend some time at some of his folks' house where we're staying. And we said, sure. He said, how do I get there? I said, just follow us and we'll go together. Well, we followed us for the first hour, I think we went about maybe five, ten miles. <laughs> Honestly. And he calls me and says, Peter, I'm sorry, we have to turn around and go home. Okay? So I knew it was going to be a long, long ride. Which it was. But um, there are so many different things that we're we're recalling that in a culture here, we're amazed at the the warmth of the people in general here. There are times I almost wonder, like, are all Americans like almost Christians? Because they smile here, you know, they open the doors and things like that. They're different for us now to are used to again. Uh, and then there's all the the conveniences of life here that I've forgotten about also, like electric blankets. Uh, somehow, yesterday morning, at 3 a.m. in the morning, i got to explain. I've had a cold, and so I want to turn my head the other way so I wouldn't cough on Sonia. So I'm sleeping the other way, and somehow, at 3 a.m. in the morning, I wake up with this electric cord wrapped around my head, okay? <laughs> and that's not very easy to do, okay? But so anyhow, I decided I need to unplug the thing. It's dark, okay? And I unplug it, and I push the blanket up, and the blanket falls down. The, the large, surprisingly heavy metal piece in the blanket comes down and hits me in the chin. Okay? It's still kind of sore, actually. So that wakes up Sonia, and she ends up laughing. Now, all all these things are like different aspects of adjusting back to the culture here. This morning, I'm not here to talk to you about cultural differences. We're going to talk about something far more significant in God's eternal plan. We're going to focus on the race that God has called each and every Christian to run, that we can win for his glory. As I begin this morning, I want... To work from a presupposition, from a presumption that we as Christians want to be winners for the sake of Christ. Is that a right presupposition? I'll go smart and ask it again, excuse me. Do we want to be winners in the race that God has put us in as Christians? Yes or no? Yeah. Amen. Good. I'm working from that standpoint. Okay? I don't want to try to prove that, that'd be another message. So we're starting at that point. Then let me ask you this morning, as we begin, just to get ourselves thinking about this race. Three quick questions. And please answer them mentally, yes or no. Number one, do you ever wake up in the morning and have little interest to live that day fully for Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Don't say it out loud. Number two, do you sometimes feel that the responsibilities that you face, the job, the housework, making payments... They ever leave you wondering what in the world you're accomplishing for heaven's sake? You ever think about that? What am I doing? What is counting for eternity? Number three, you ever question if you're most fully accomplishing God's will for your life in how you're living? Now, hang on to those answers. I realize here in Southern California, life is very busy. There's a frenetic pace about everything. Even in ministry, people are just Moving. It's something like Mach 6.5, very incredibly fast. This morning, I want us to step back a little bit and let the Spirit of God show us His perspective on our lives as we view the race of the Christian life. Now, those three questions. If any of those questions you answered yes to, I have great news for you. And the great news is this. God wants to change you. God wants to change your life. He wants to show you the race that He has called you to run very clearly this morning. And He wants to show you how to win that race for His glory and for your joy. And he's going to change us. He's going to teach us through His Word. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Let's ask God to work, prepare our hearts to hear His Word. Father, we tremble at Your Word and His power to transform us. Father, take it, we pray. And as a master surgeon, cut deeply in our hearts. Oh God, would you convict us? Change us. May we be different people for your glory because of your transforming power, we pray. Amen. Would you take your Bible and please open to First Corinthians chapter 9 if you're not there already. You have an outline as well. We're going to look at verses 16 through 27. That is our text. As you turn there, let me remind you of why Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian believers. It's not only to correct their spiritual problems. It's also to compel them to victorious Christian living. Now, in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul describes his radical ministry in the gospel. That's the focus of chapter 9. Now, follow along closely as we look at verses 16 through 27. And can I ask, Bob, would you read that for us, the passage? Chapter 9, verses 16 through 27 of our passage. Yeah. Thank you. For I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast
1: of. For I am under the control of it is to if I preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if I gain my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. But what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so that to not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I have become a Jew, so that I may win Jews. To those who are under the law, and as under the law, those not being of myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, those not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I become weak so that I might win the weak. And I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become the fellow partaker of it. Do not do you not know that those who run in the race not only receive the prize, but in such a way that you may win? Everyone who competes in the games exercise self-control in all things, and they do, do it to receive perishable reed, but an imperishable. Therefore, in one such a way that is without name I box in such a way that is not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that I may preach to others. I myself do not be disqualified.
0: Thank you, Bob. If you as Christians... Want to be useful to God's purposes. If you want to have eternal reward from God, you have to be compelled to the core of what this pastor says this morning. We have to understand it. But first we need to understand what is even even talking about the race. Because we don't want to move to the pastor and then realize, uh uh-oh, we didn't even understand what the race is about. Let's be sure we clarify the race that Paul is talking about. What is the race we're supposed to be running? By the way, many view and even teach that the race is just the Christian life. But Paul here says it's something far more specific. Look at me. Look with me. Excuse me. Verse 16. What does he say? If I do not preach what? The? Say it, please. The gospel. Let's go on. Verse 18. When I preach the? Good. I may offer the? Without charge to make full use of my right in the? There we go. Verse 23, for the sake of the and verse 12, before text, the Gospel of Christ." You know what? It's pretty clear. Paul's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The race, the Christian life he's call, race, he's calling us to run, is not a general race to please God. It's what we're doing with the gospel. It's what we're doing in proclaiming the good news of salvation. And that's the backdrop we want us to understand so we move forward. We're thinking about the Christian race in this passage is the race of being faithful to proclaim the gospel of Christ. That's the gospel race. Now, please, listen very carefully. God is not telling us about bringing the race to the gospel so we can go home this morning and say, thank God that the Apostle Paul was a great missionary. Now, what's for lunch? Okay. We can say, that's fine. I understand the gospel is, is what the race is about, but that's the Apostle Paul. That's his apostolic ministry. No. This passage, as we begin to move forward through it, is for us, you and I this morning. We're the ones that God is looking at saying, you run the Christian race to win for my glory. You know, you may put in 60, maybe 70 hours a week at work. You may wonder, ladies, how you ever catch up on all the cleaning at the house. You may be troubled by problems with friends or, or uh, finances. And for the children that are here or over there, wherever they are, they may think that homework and cleaning their room is the only thing they can do in life. But well, here we're going to see that first and foremost, our greatest God-given responsibility is the big race of the gospel that He's called us to. And we're we'll going to see the passage unfold and develop. This, friends, is the great gospel race, making Jesus Christ known everywhere, being a soul winner, and being a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. This is for all Christians this morning. Let's get started. Let's get into the text, and we'll see what God shows us here. Let's get started with point one, the motivation. The motivation for running the gospel race. Paul launches into this text, not by giving us what people would often do, a bunch of how to's. No, he goes to the heart. He compels us to run the race of the gospel by speaking to the motivation. Look at verse 16. He says, For if I preach the gospel, I'll just stop for a second there. In writing, If I preach, he's not saying, Maybe I do, and maybe I don't. That's not the point in the original language. The idea is, he's affirming factual truth. This is his life commitment. He is actively abandoned to the priority of the gospel. And we ask why? Why is Paul so committed to that priority? Excuse me. It's not for the good feelings when he shares Christ with others. That's not what motivates Paul. It's not so he'll be respected by the Christians who say, look at him. Look at that guy. He's an evangelist. And it's not even so he'd have the feeling that God was using his life. These, friends, are shallow motivators in the gospel of Christ. Mark well his motivation for declaring the good news. He tells in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, and here it is, for I am under compulsion. In four concise words, Paul states the first motivation to preach Jesus Christ everywhere. I am under compulsion. You might be thinking, wait a minute. I don't like that word compulsion. Isn't it bad to be motivated by compulsion? Doesn't the Bible say bad things about compulsion? Is compulsion good? Or is compulsion bad? What does Paul say in St. Corinthians 9 about compulsion? Don't give it to compulsion. Right? So what do you do with it here? Friends, giving up compulsion is wrong. But sharing the gospel out of compulsion is right and glorifying to God. Everyone see it here. Compulsion in this context literally means necessity or complete obligation that is placed upon a person. So Paul is saying in regarding regarding proclaiming Christ, I have no choice. God has set me apart for this to proclaim the gospel. I have to. Yet we ask. Where did this motivation come from in Paul's life? Where did he get it? What caused it to pulsate through Paul's veins to make Christ known everywhere? When did it happen? Answer, God planted it deep in the heart of the Apostle Paul on the day of his conversion. You remember what happened? He was thrown on his face to the ground, blinded by the light. Christ speaks to him and says, Stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you. What purpose? To appoint you a minister and a witness. Acts 26, verse 16. The day Paul was saved was the day that God called him to the proclamation of the gospel. His conversion to Christ was his commission to preach Christ. It wasn't at a latter point. And that's why Paul says in verse 17 of our text, For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, watch it now, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Many people view volunteering to share the gospel as a noble thing. But Paul is saying in verse 17 just the opposite. It's not a noble thing. I love what the Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest renders, how he renders this verse. Listen carefully. He says, Paul is saying, a responsibility of administrating the propagation of the good news has been trusted to me. And it is the impelling motive that makes it impossible not to proclaim it. Christian, how about you? Can you say this morning that the stewardship God gave you to share the gospel is the impelling motive that makes it impossible for you not to proclaim it? Excuse me. In other words, God has called me to this purpose and I dare do nothing else but fulfill the purpose God has called me to. Paul stresses that if he had come on his own or voluntarily, he would be due a reward. He would have expected a monetary reward from the people. But the reward that motivated Paul was not financial. It was something much different. It tells us in verse 18 what his reward is. Look at it, please. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as to make full use of my right in the gospel. What is Paul's reward for wanting to preach the gospel? What does he look forward to? What drives him on to proclaim Christ everywhere? It's a satisfaction to know that he can proclaim it without being dependent upon anybody or anything. He's free to preach Christ. You know, I thank God in hearing about those of you here at the church. News travels; we hear that are faithful to proclaim Christ. That you're going after unbelievers, you're making the contacts, you're praying for the lost. It's a huge encouragement to my heart. The street evangelism, the summer outreaches, but you know, even more maybe we could say strategic, the faithful making Christ known with neighbors, with relatives, with friends. That's the heart of evangelism. You know, I want to say to you, may your tri- my, by God's grace, may your tribe increase. You live for the gospel. You understand the motivation that God has given you, that stewardship. You know, but for many of us this morning, we're just not there. You know, we're just not there in proclaiming Christ. Many of us aren't really, thoroughly, deeply consumed by allowing to declare Christ everywhere. And in every place. And actually, most of us don't lose much sleep or give much thought to the ministry to share the good news. You know, I know how it is. Life is busy. And for you guys that work full time, there's a lot going. Getting the promotion at work, upskilling our lives, maybe finding a life partner, starting a family, and on and on and on. Those things begin to preoccupy our thinking. The state of the church today, in the world, in regards to proclaiming Christ, it's tragic. you realize that we're told that 95% of all Christians have never been used by the Lord to lead one person to Jesus Christ? 95%. Now, I know in a room like this, you guys would have, like, way better. I know you guys are after the gospel, but still, it affects us, too. There are many of us that aren't fully consumed with that. Friends, maybe that is your situation this morning. Maybe other things have taken first place over what God has called you to in the stewardship of his gospel. You know, I'll identify with you. That was my miserable situation for 16 years of my life. I can remember how I felt so miserable knowing that God had called me to share the good news. But I wasn't as a kid. I wasn't, and nobody had to tell me that. The word works in my heart. So I began to ask God. I began to plead with God to change my heart. Excuse me. And God heard the prayer. He began to change me. It was really strange what happened. One summer afternoon, I was like 16, 17 years old. I was at the house, and unusually, I was the only one home that afternoon. I had my afternoon planned. I had I had bought this crazy Cayman kind of a giant lizard skin. I was gonna put in my little Bible. It was like my project for the afternoon. But I couldn't do that. I just was thinking, man, the gospel. My neighbors. And so I thought I'll pray. And then maybe my parents will come home and it'll be okay. Okay? I prayed, nobody came home. So I grabbed my Bible, thought the Cayman skin cover on it. And I just began to walk down the street. and then I was scared inside. But I said, you know what? This is what God wants me to do. And I started at one house and went to the next house. And I began to talk to these neighbors. You know what? They wanted to hear about Christ. This is Burbank. I mean, this isn't, you know, primitive culture. This is Burbank. You know, I began to talk. I don't know how long maybe 45 minutes is out there. And I'll tell you, when I turn around and come home, I was absolutely elated. Why? Because I knew that that's what God had made me for. That that's what God had saved me for. And brothers and sisters, don't look at me and say, that's right, Pastor Peter, that's what you're made for. That's what God has made you also for. God has made us to proclaim Him everywhere. That is our stewardship. You know, the first motivation we see there is because God, in saving us, has called us to proclaim His name. It's wonderfully compulsory for every one of us that knows Christ to make Him known. Let me say this to you now. This has huge ramifications for us in how we go about ministry. That it's not a voluntary approach as we go out to share the gospel or as we go out to do missions. And I'm so blessed that you guys embrace this. I'm just praising God as I'm sharing these things that God has taught me in the text. But when we look at outreach... Leaders of church don't go to the church and say, okay, guys, we're looking for volunteers for people to sign up. I'm so glad you guys send the best out there to proclaim the gospel. That's what we see in this text. God's calling is for his people to be obedient. And God's leaders are to call his people to be obedient to the calling, the stewardship that they have. And God's flock here, when your leaders call to that, he'd respond. Not to volunteer, but just be ready to be moving. Sip out in faith, fellow believers, to every opportunity that God gives to make him known. Don't wait. Campus outreaches, evangelistic training, the OC outreach, cross-cultural ministry, you should each be actively pursuing to be involved in every single one of those. until so the elders say, "Wait a minute, not yet. Praise God, but not yet. That's the mentality. Number two, to be faithful to steward. Every conversation with unbelievers that you speak with. Let me give you another encouraging suggestion. To be faithful to stewardship, we need to learn from each other. Learn from guys like Pastor James, Pastor Bob, Pastor Marcus, Dale, and Joan, and Joe, excuse me. Every one of these guys has been incredible encouragement to me, not only in ministry, but in watching their love for the lost and how they share the gospel with others. I've watched them. That's blessed my life. That's encouraged me. We can learn from one another. Friends, there's another powerful motivator we see in proclaiming the good news. Look at the end of verse 16, what it says. Paul exclaims, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me. Now, we use the word woe you know, when we see something kind of neat. Woe, look at that. That's not Paul's saying here. It's a whole different idea. The sense of woe that Paul speaks of, he's expressing God's, it speaks of, he's expecting God's severest punishment and great misery if he neglects to make the gospel known. Woe, he says. It's deep grief, horror, and dread. You're saying, really? Is it that bad? It is. And will you and I personally experience God's wrath, if we are unfaithful in the gospel, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Paul says, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And friends, woe is to us if we do not preach the gospel. So we are motivated by God's purpose in saving us. Secondly, we are motivated as well by the punishment if we are disobedient to that calling. Like so many of the Old Testament prophets Jeremiah understood the torment that came from not speaking God's message. Write down Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. Incredible text. He says, But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. That's torment. Torment. That's torment that experience, is experienced from not proclaiming God's message. Oh, to God that He would burn deeply into our lives a holy compulsion in the gospel. What well, we have in the starting point for winning the Christian race, it's motivation. Being motivated to proclaim the gospel. Let's move on to point number two. The right motivation leads us to the right mindset. The right mindset. What kind of mindset must we have to win the race of the gospel? What is necessary? Verse 19 tells us, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. Let me give you a subpoint point under mindset, letter A. A slave of all perspective. A slave of all perspective. This is a beautiful paradox that Paul is saying. He says, I am free from all men, Yet I'm a slave to all men. Interesting, isn't it? What's he saying? He's saying he's refused the support of others and instead has chosen to make tents at night. Why? Not only so they cannot judge his motives, but also saying he can have more effective ministry of proclaiming the gospel. Let me explain it this way. From our perspective the Czech Republic, if I was paid by the people that would share the gospel to, even the church this time, there would be some that might be thinking, "Wow, is he doing this just to get something out of us?" Okay, there's a sense of doubting our motives. That's a legitimate thing to be concerned about. And Paul says, "I want nothing to do with that. When I proclaim the gospel, I'm be free from all men in that." But I think there's something else here that we see in not taking support, the opportunity to work. There's a built relationship with other people that work. In the Czech Republic there, I have an opportunity to teach every Wednesday in the gymnasium. I used to do that for my visa, so I could say legal, our family. But it also gives an opportunity to identify with the local people. When they see us, allow me to work with them, know that we can also do normal things like they do, there's credibility that is built with the local people. So, I thank God for the opportunity to to work with the people. English outreach in the evenings, too. People ask us, what do you do in the Czech Republic? I say, I teach English in the gymnasium and also in an English course. Judah is the same. That gives us credibility among those that would share the gospel, too. Well, let me say this to you. Most of you that are are working, your workplace is a God-given platform for the gospel. And you, therefore, should, should have the mindset that first and foremost, your mission at school or at work is for the gospel. It's not the paycheck. That's secondary. It's to make Christ known in that workplace or at that school. That is the mission, force that God has called you to man or we can say to woman. Okay? Many of you have heard of Count Zinzendorf in the 1700s. A wealthy man who had a huge estate north of the, then the Czech lands. The Catholics began to pursue the Christians and drove them out from the country. They fled from Moravia and took refuge there on his large estate. Last summer, the summer team went up there, had a wonderful time reliving the zeal that these Moravian Christians had for Christ and for making the gospel known. Interesting that the first missionary that they sent out... His name was Leonard Dober. He was sent to the West Indies to the Virgin Islands. And Count Zinzendorf personally escorted him up to Dresden on his route to go all the way to the coast to catch a ship to go to the West Indies. And on the way, Count Zinzendorf said to Leonard, listen, I'm going to give you final instructions for your mission there in West Indies. And he said this to him. Number one, live among the people as one of them. Number two, earn your own keep. And thirdly, remember you are there to serve. You now I think Count Zinzendorf read first Corinthians nine beforehand. That is solid biblical counsel. Leonard Fall, the biblical counsel, he sold himself into slavery to work with the plantation workers, and he witnessed the first fruits of the gospel because of his ministry. You know what? He had the right mindset. He had the mindset of a servant who identified with the people. The Apostle Paul had no less of a radical mindset when he shared the good news. And he not only had a slave of all perspective, but he also, letter B, he was totally expendable for all. Once more, totally expendable for all. Verses 20-23. through Notice in the text, very briefly, the incredible extremes that the Apostle Paul goes to with various groups to make Christ known. In verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became a Jew. Now think about that. Wait a minute. I thought the Apostle Paul was a Jew, wasn't he? How can he become what he already is? Have you thought about that? What is he saying? He's saying... I'm no longer a Jew. I'm a new creation in Christ. When I do the ministry of the gospel, my mindset is, I become what they are. Identify those people. So I to the Jew, a Jew. Verse 21, To those who are without the law, as without law. Paul adjusts himself and ministered to the Gentiles. Remember in Acts 17, secular audience, no Jewish background. What does Paul do? Paul identifies with them, he starts with creation, he quotes from the secular poets. He knows who he's speaking to. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak. Paul says, I will limit my preferences to anybody, whether it's physical weakness, whether it's religious weakness, I will limit my preferences to minister the gospel to them. And we say, why all this adjusting and being so sensitive to minister the gospel? We see it; it's repeated four times. It's not a small deal in the text. He says that I might win them. That I might win them. That's why I do this. Do you realize what Paul is saying? He's saying that without compromising the message, he will go to any length to win his listeners to Jesus Christ. Any length. His habits, his preferences, his customs, even, yes... His method of sharing the gospel with others would change if he needed to, so they could be saved. This was his apostolic strategy for winning people to Jesus Christ. Now, I hope some of you might be thinking, Peter, wait a minute. I thought the Apostle Paul, I thought, well, he was Calvinist, wasn't he? Or, we, you know, we have kind of a sense of there's something going on here. You guys are well-trained in the Word. And I trust that some of you are like biblical radar screens are like beeping saying, you know what, this sounds a little bit seeker friendly. If you think that, that's good. Let me give you three quick clarifications to show you the difference here. Becoming all things to all men for the gospel affirms from start to finish that God is the one who saves. Jonah 2.9 Salvation is of the Lord. Number two. Becoming all things to all men never waters down the gospel. It always preaches against sin. Remember 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17? Not that we are like many, many, peddling the word of God. That he is watering it down. We don't do that. We speak in Christ the sight of God, the truth. Paul adapted himself and not the gospel to his audience. Number three, disclaimer, Becoming all things to all men speaks of going outward to proclaim the gospel, rather than trying to control the lost to come to church and fit in. There's a big difference there. Having made those disclaimers, I don't want you to miss the point. The point isn't the disclaimers. The point is we must internalize the apostolic mindset in the gospel. We must, we must be shaken by that. Having a desperate sense of being willing to do anything, anything short of sin, to see someone else saved. That is the apostolic mindset. God, I'll do anything. I'll be willing to die. I won't sin, but I'll do anything so that another person can come to know Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you aren't convinced yet. Maybe you're thinking, this still sounds you know, Armenian. in. sounds foreign. Look at verse 22. That's exactly what Paul is saying. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Paul couldn't write it any stronger. And similarly, he says in verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. we can't miss the depth of what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, I will go to any length I will descend to any level of society. I will perform any menial task for the hopes that someone will come to know Jesus Christ. Paul has the mentality of being totally expendable for the sake of Jesus Christ. You know what? We must do. This is a calling to us. I believe this isn't just the Apostle Paul's teaching. I believe this is exactly what our Lord was teaching in Luke 16, verse 9. He goes to the parable of the stewards and he summarizes it in Luke 69. He says this, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. That's an incredible verse. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying the wise man is the one that will spend all his money to bring some person to Christ, in whatever means, so God will use that to save him. Why? So one day, when we go to glory, that person will welcome us in, that person who God has converted, by the way that he has blessed the in investment of those funds. We're not saying that funds save people. We're saying that God blesses that desperate longing, that mindset of being totally expendable for Christ's sake. Christ is saying the very same thing as Paul. You know, it's a hard lesson to learn. It's a hard lesson. To be totally expendable so that other people will be saved. You know, we can say that and nod our heads and say, that's good. We want to be that way. We can pray that way. But I'll tell you, when we begin to move that way, it's tough. It's hard. And I say that because we as a family, we as a church, the last two months have been that situation. It's been God's plan. It's been God's design. Joe alluded to that earlier. One Friday afternoon, two months ago, six of us went out to share the gospel in the walking zone. I must tell you, so it's real clear and honest, out of that six, two were unbelievers. And you're saying, how can unbelievers share the gospel? They just hang along. They're soccer buddies, they hear the gospel, they share the gospel, but they're with us. So really, four Christians sharing the gospel. We're sharing the gospel with people, talking to people, and we meet this guy absolutely look like he's walking death. He reeked so strongly of deep, strong, cleaning thinner. That when I talked to him, I had his back up. It was totally offensive to me. And I talked to him a while, he was a bit drunk. He was just he had been his body was full of thinner. And he said, We want to help. I said, let's go to the restaurant. Let's get something to eat. I go to the restaurant, they say, You can't come in here. He's not welcome to the restaurant. I said, Why not? He owes us two hundred crowns. I said, No problem, we'll cover it. We want to get some soup. They let us in. We shared the gospel with Connell. Incredible time. And I thought, this guy is so messed up. You know, what could happen to this guy? We said, listen, Connell, if you want more help, you come on Sunday, 10 o'clock, to the church, and we'll pray for you. We were totally shocked. Sunday, 10 o'clock, Connell's there. He's there. With his bag, his plastic bag of all his life possessions. This guy had been. A, is a beggar. We found out then 25 of his 49 years spent in prison. Hard dude. His face tattooed here. His hands are tattooed. No teeth in the front at all. Five teeth in the back. I bought him a toothbrush. He says, what do I do with this it's the thing? He says, No. Excuse me. But let me tell you. Carl walks in, and our church is like, What's going on here? Who is this guy? He sits through the message. He hears it. And then we announced that Sunday. At the end, we have our winter camp coming. And I'm thinking, what do I do with Carl? You know? What do I do with him? We share the gospel with him. We tell him we care for him. Keith, by the way, he sleeps under the bridge right next to the office, about 50 feet away, in a hole. That's his home. So I'm thinking, Lord, what are you, what are you doing? He you can't come to camp with us. I talked to him and said, yeah, you're gonna come? we're going to have him come to camp. Three days, Carl comes to camp. And yeah, it's like, who is he going to stay with? And whose room is he going to stay with for three days? Thank God for Brother Milan. You know? Some of you know Brother Milan. He's the only guy on the earth who could handle this thing. He's been in prison himself in the past, okay? These three days, before Christ. I walked in that room about knocked me out. The stench, the odor of clothes that hadn't been washed for probably months. It reeked the room. I opened it. was freezing outside. But I opened the door just like let freezing air come in to kind of clear it out. Milan was a servant of servants. Milan became all things to all men, to Karel. It's incredible. He gave himself to Karel Car- to totally. And then the camp ended. Man, God was working. Karel was hard. Thinking, you know, God, what's going on? What's happening? He made some profession of faith, but we didn't know what was happening. He gets desperate in a horrible situation. He gets robbed, Karel does, after we get back to No Mugged. Ends up in the hospital. Then he's flat broke. In fact, just flat out. He comes to the office and he says, Peter, what do I do? I'm going to kill myself. I will kill myself and jump off that bridge. Amen every word of it. I said, Kyle, get off the seat. Kneel down and beg of God to save you. You know what? I didn't think he was going to. By the way, he was very proud. Very proud as a criminal. He gets off the seat. He goes to his knees He says, God, he goes through all his sins. He says, God, I repent. Please forgive me. I believe God totally at that point transformed his life. I was like, he's a new man. He's a totally different guy. He gave up his drinking. He doesn't want to touch alcohol anymore. He loves the word. He loves prayer. He loves ministering at church. He vacuums. He's a changed man. He loves also sharing the gospel. I love taking him out sharing the gospel. He knows thousands of people in Cludno. He yeah really, and they know him. Okay, it's great. He's like my evangelistic buddy. But let me tell you this: God changed Karel. God has changed Karel. Incredible testimony marvelous tribute and showcase of God's power and salvation. But God is changing our church. You know what happened? The next Sunday, what happened? Carla invited two of his friends, homeless guys, to come to church. These guys look worse than carla <laughs> Honestly. they were. One of them was high during the service. They were drunk. They have stuff on their back, leaves and dirt from when they sleep on the ground. And our people at church are like, oh, no. What does this come to? And it's bad. So we've got to open the windows of the church quickly, turn the fan on, so people won't go out before the message over. Now, it's hard. And you can guess what happened. The next Monday, we have a meeting. The leaders, servant leaders in church. What was the top agenda item? What are we doing with these guys in church? What are they doing? How do we deal with this? You know what? Our group of men, we call it the men of faith. I'll tell you, we didn't look to our name. It was like one of the questions was, these guys could have TV, Peter. What are we doing? The other one says, you know what? What's going to happen to our people at church if we have these kind of people come? You know what? We came here for God. We prayed. We understood the mentality of the gospel. This is what we've been saved for. And so God's moving us along on that. God's really shaking us up. Pray for us in that as we get that mindset. Friends, God wants us to have that kind of mentality. Let me give you very quickly five simple suggestions of gaining that mentality. Number 1 spend time with unbelievers if possible every day go to the park join a sports club for an unsafe friend but seek to spend time with an unsafe person every day spend time number 2 seek to understand the particular situation of the unbelievers you meet listen to them let them talk let them share their broken hearts And ask them questions. Number three, seize opportunities in every conversation to proclaim Christ. Seize the opportunities. Don't wait. Number four, stay armed. Stay armed with a pocket New Testament, the gospel portion that you can always turn to, give out in any conversation. Stay armed. Number five, set aside all non negotiables for the sake of the gospel. You're saying, Well, what are non negotiables? Rest and time for self, pointless entertainment, feelings of being uncomfortable around certain unbelievers. Set those things aside. So the gospel mindset is to do everything possible to as many people as possible for their salvation. That is the radical mindset of the gospel we're called to. You know, there's a really neat result that Paul expects. We just touched on it in verse twenty three. He says that I may be a fellow partaker of it. You know, it's pretty clear what he's not saying, right? Paul's not saying, if I share the gospel, then I get saved too. We know that's wrong theology. But what is he saying? He's saying that this allows him to participate in the blessings that new converts to Christ receive. In other words, Paul said, I don't want to just enjoy the gospel for myself. I want to partake with the new converts in the joy that they have when they come to Christ. Well, in the race of the gospel, we've seen the motivation that is to compel us. We've seen the mindset that is to consume us, and now let's look very briefly at the mastery that is to control us. The mastery, verses 24 to 27. The following four verses are the most graphic illustration all of the scriptures of mastery required to win the race of the gospel. This is the text. There is no clear text in all of the word about the mastery required to win the race of the gospel. So please, let's hang tight. Let's get this. Let's understand it. Paul is speaking of the famous Isthmian Games in the area of Isthmus, just seven miles from Corinth. It would have been very well known to his readers Likely, they would have even attended those games, and I believe, this is my hunch, the Apostle Paul himself was some kind of a sports guy, he used those faces all the time. He probably himself was there cheering on, probably, possibly even his own disciples in the faith to run in the races. But we know these games are what he's drawing on to illustrate the Christian race. But here now, he's cheering us on in the Christian race of the gospel. And he's looking at us and saying, run for the gospel's sake to win. And as any great coach, he tells us how. He gives us a universal axiom from sports in verse 25. He says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Small letter A, if you want a minor point, we must embrace Suffering. Embrace suffering. The master that controls us requires us to embrace suffering. It's likely that Paul takes his verb here from the wrestling arena. When he talks about the word, the word compete. Because many of you realize that the word is agonizo. Which of course from English we get Agonize. It's a very unpleasant word. There's nothing fun about agony or agonizing. When college wrestling coach Matt Orr let me walk onto his team as a college freshman, I quickly began to understand what the word agony means. I never wrestled in my life before. I thought I was done with sports. I just grappled with my bird in the backyard. But I went into his wrestling room there in the college and I watched these guys wrestle, I thought, this is an incredible sport. And I thought, man, i got to ask the coach, would you let me walk on, please? So I asked him, I said, Coach Orr, could I give it a shot? He said, if you do everything I tell you to do, welcome aboard. That was the beginning of agony. Absolute agony. I remember one day, he stood in front of the wrestlers, he gets a piece of char- chalk out, he scratched on the boor- board, <coughs> excuse me, four words that embrace his mentality for sports no pain, no gain. And I looked at that and thought, man, for some reason he slipped out of the room, one of the wrestlers grabbed the chocolate and went up there, no pain, no gain, no brain. Okay? We feel like that though. Agony is incredible. He put us through absolutely unbelievable, torturous trainings. Amazing. i got to be honest with you. There were times I was close to praying to God that He would injure me so I could get out gracefully, tr- it's honest. So I could get out of the team. He's a Christian coach, by the way, okay? Credible guy. But I was like, God, how do I get out of this thing? He would make us lose from 20 to 30 pounds when we were actually at our peak, then he'd say go down 20 to 30 pounds so we could begin to wrestle where he wants to wrestle at. And I thought, what on earth is he doing? On top of all of I mean, he had this crazy gleeful smile watching us suffer on the mat for hours. You do horrible, horrible things to us. But you know what? Coach Matt Orr, he wanted to win. You know what? He did. He did. And he showed his guys that the path to winning is self-mastery. Now, here's the kicker. Watch this. Paul says, if athletes go to such extremes for a goofy little ribbon, a wreath that won't last, how much more should we as Christians Master our bodies for an eternal reward. You see it? There's the comparison. Our reward in verse 25 is imperishable in the gospel. Now think about it. Think about where we have come as a Christian culture. We have fallen to such a soft and undisciplined lifestyle. Why is it that when our bodies scream for pleasure... Whether it's unneeded food or rest or entertainment, our minds cannot say no. Why do we spend so little time proclaiming the gospel during the week? Why can so few Christians today get up early in the morning to spend unhurried time with the Lord? Why? Because we have lost mastery over our bodies. And we act like the eternal difference or the eternal outcome, will make no difference. Friends, that's a lie. That's wrong. It will. There will be an eternity of difference based upon whether we have self-mastery or not in the gospel. Listen to this. God is wanting, God is waiting to place on your head a crown, an eternal crown, if you'll master your body For the sake of the gospel. Let me ask you, do you want that crown? Do you want the imperishable crown that God wants to give to you? If we say yes, then we must make up our mind to get our flesh under control. Mastery of our bodies means not only saying no to the easy life and to the trivial, trivial amusements that bombard us, It also means saying yes to purposeful living for Jesus Christ. Letter B not only must we embrace suffering, we must excise the superfluous. Excise the superfluous. Basically, cut out the fat. You realize that everything you do during the week, you should be able to justify consciously with the gospel. Every single thing you do in your life during the week, you should be able to justify with the absolute priority of the gospel. Everything for the Christian should adorn the gospel. And that is exactly why the Apostle Paul says what he says in verse 26. He says, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. No wasted steps no missed punches by the boxer, and no missed moment, no wasted moment for the Christian in the gospel. I want you to realize something. We're in the battle together. We're in this together. I wage the same war you guys do every single day. I battle my body in a myriad of ways just like you. My flesh will scream for so many things. And I must constantly tell it, the expression, shut up. I will not do that. I dare not listen to it. Personally, I must regularly force my body to do things that it hates just to be sure that it is kept under subordination. I have to. For if our flesh and feelings dictate what we do, we have no mastery over our bodies. And you know what? We will, have no, we will forfeit eternal reward. There's a lot at stake here for the sake of the gospel. You know, maybe this sounds very extreme to you this morning, but Paul literally says in verse 27, he said that he gives himself a blow beneath the eyes. In our we say, he gives himself a black eye, a knockout punch. Why? Just so I can keep my body, make it my slave. He makes the slave. We say, Paul, why do you have to have your body a slave? He answers, he says, so that when I preach the gospel, I will not be discredited. You see what he's saying? Paul's saying, one foolish mistake could jeopardize my whole ministry of the gospel for the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, I don't dare do anything that would cause me to join the countless Christians in that hall of shame whose testimony in the gospel has been shipwrecked on the rocks of indulgence and compromise. Paul says, I don't go there. I will not do that. I will make my body my slave. How about us? What is our desire? If we want to be useful to God's kingdom, it's going to take radical steps. It's going to take us coming for God and pleading for Him to change us. It's going to take extreme measures that God will wrought in our hearts. Many of you know the five missionaries in 1956 in Ecuador that went to the Alco-Indians with the gospel that later were martyred. Jim Elliott and his buddies were there. Their pilot, his name was Nate Saint. Nate Saint had a little yellow Piper Cub That was very strategic to their mission. With that little Piper Cub, they took everything they had, including the guys, systematically, and landed them on Palm Beach to get them into the area to share Christ there with the people. Before they went there, Nate Saint Saint began to do radical things in preparing for his mission. He looked at the plane and said, there's got to be major change. There were nice wheel covers that covered the wheels to keep mud off the plane. He ripped those off. They weighed too much. And then he went and looked at the seats and thought those seats are necessarily heavy. He ripped up all the insulation, all the padding on the seats, until there's a wire frame. You know what he was doing? He was making it possible to have the greatest profit in hauling all they need to do for the gospel's sake there among the alcas. And listen to what he says. He makes a comparison between his mission with that little Piper plane and our mission as believers in this world. Watch the comparison. He says, when life's flight is over, he who has gotten rid of the most unnecessary baggage will have the greatest cargo to present to the Lord. You get that? When life's flight is over, he who has gotten rid of the most unnecessary baggage will have the most valuable cargo to present to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I hope, I pray your hearts saying, I long for that. I want to be that way. I want everything to be given to God's sake. And not be wasted on things that are passing and empty. Let's respond to God in prayer. Let's ask God to work in our hearts now. These things. take a moment and talk to God. Ask Him to search your heart. Ask Him to bring to mind those things that He would have you change. Thank Him for your grace, for His grace in your life, for the stewardship of the gospel. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the glorious race of making the glories of Christ known everywhere you've called us to. Oh God, we pray that you would, through your Spirit, motivate us to be those people that take seriously that stewardship. Oh God, may we fear bring displeasure to your face. Lord, we pray that you would change the way we think. Father, you would help us to reshuffle our priorities, our use of time, use of money, our talents, all those things, God, that we would submit them to your mastery. Oh God, we pray that you would teach us what it means to keep our bodies under control, not through human striving, but through submission to your Spirit. Father, we give you praise, we give you glory for what you will do in our lives how you continue to change us, how you build your kingdom, how you build your church through us as we walk faithfully with you. Father, we love you. We thank you for all you are to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.